Good morning and welcome again to another episode of Good Medicine is Cheaper Medicine, sponsored by the Gabriel Cancer Center. I'm Nash Gabriel and with me is Shelley Ranch. Shelley is the administrator for Gabriel Cancer Center. Um, Shelley, uh, today we decided to talk about something very unique. Medical ethics. Do we really teach what is needed? Okay. Almost like, looks like even the Freakonomics title. Yeah. Medical ethics, do we teach what we need? What do you have to say, Charlie, can you, what do you think the audience or the listeners should know? You know, I, I think that um, a lot of people feel the public doesn't understand what the Hippocratic Oath is. All they know is that they feel that they should be treated by physicians in a safe way and as we mentioned in our last episode, a personalized way. But um, I don't think they understand what physicians are really taught on how to treat patients. So uh, you tell me, what, what should we be expecting as being ethical by clinicians? I think, I think when you look at the original Hippocratic Oath, which was written thousands of years ago, and most of us still comply by it and follow it, if you look at it, actually, that's exactly what patients want. Patients want that when they are seen by a physician, that the doctor should put the patient's best interest at heart and everything the doctor would do or should do has to be in the patient's best interest, not in the doctor's best interest. In addition to facts like you don't do harm intentionally. Now, we do know, we do know mistakes happen, right? Um, and, and doctors are not infallible. And it goes on and on and on. What I have noticed, and by the way, um, I think uh, when, uh, um, when we were looking uh, yesterday on, on, on uh, the subject, only about 15 or 20% of medical schools still administer the Hippocratic Oath. That was kind of a surprise to me because we did that oath in Iraq when I finished medical school in Mosul. Um, we really, in fact... It was, it was very much an admired thing that in the first clinical session that we had in medical school was all about medical ethics. And guess what? When they taught us medical ethics in those days, in medical school, it wasn't about euthanasia, no euthanasia, abortion, no abortion. No, it was about the conduct of a physician in the society. So one of the things they taught us was, you cannot be friends with your patients. It's not advisable that you socialize with patients. You don't play golf with patients. Try to restrain yourself from belonging to a country club. And it goes on and on and on. It makes you almost like, like a priest. Although priests do those things here, right? But those are all the things that, that patients love about you. Um, the different cultures, dif different things. And, and there, there is no doubt that the physician-patient relationship is changing with time because of various reasons. I play golf with my, with my patients. Um, I mean, there are many things that, that have evolved with time. What I got surprised, back to the real subject, is... When we, when I see the curriculum for the medical schools or the interns that are doing training um, or the lecture sponsored by the hospitals or universities, when you see any of that uh, about, about medical ethics, 
it's almost always talking about euthanasia, no euthanasia, euthanasia, no euthanasia. Like, like euthanasia is the only subject that is relevant in the medical ethics. Oh, sometimes they, put, they, they also put abortion, no abortion. It is in the Hippocratic Oath where he says, and I will not put a pessary in a woman's vagina to induce abortion. Right? Right. I think this tunnel view that people have adopted, a lot of people these days, they say, well, the, the, the Hippocratic Oath actually is becoming uh, kind of obsolete. We need a new one. A lot of us say, well, we'll back off. If we change everything according to the needs of the time, we might not have any more principles or concepts that we can live with. But anyway, there are things that I noticed in the U.S. since I came here in 1994, 84, sorry. Uh, of course, I, I, did it, I did also three or four years in Scotland. And, and they have an admirable system. At least they did. I start noticing that in a free market uh, like the United States, I think we need to we need to talk about more plainly with residents and physicians and medical students. We need to talk plainly about really doing what is best for patients. We're totally ignoring the economic and financial aspects of patient care. You know, you bring up the financial aspect of patient care. Sorry to interrupt, but I was just thinking in the forefront of my mind of how many times do we see physicians prescribing high dollar medications when there's lower cost alternatives out there just because they like the drug rep, they um, want to look better with numbers with the pharmacy, pharmaceutical company. Or simply company. they don't know that there is a cheaper alternative. I mean, that is definitely not in the heart of the patients, the best interest of the patients. Uh, that, should, that should be part of the medical ethics is taking a look. I, I don't like that physicians necessarily have conversations, whole conversations about the economics of a medication or the cost of the medication, but I think that part of the medical ethics that are taught to doctors should be understanding the economics behind the the right the, what they're they're writing on a script. I think that they they should be more willing to make sure that the patient is not hurt. I mean, causing no harm is also harm to the pocketbook, right? So you oh, what, no doubt about that. Actually, I think I've, we've said that more than once. One of the biggest challenges I see in medicine is access to care. Access to care. A lot of it is economical. So you're right. If we uh, lavishly uh, prescribe expensive medications to patients, and to the degree that we overwhelm their wallet, those patients will start cheating on us by not taking the medication as prescribed or not taking it at all. Not even picking it up. <laughs> not picking it up. Cut the dose by half. And those are all items that I, I do identify as challenges for access of care. So you're right. That should be part of the things that we should that we should teach um, the the residents and the physicians, rather than just concentrate on 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 one subject, euthanasia, euthanasia. In fact, there is an ethicist. Um, that ethicist is a doctor who who thinks that he knows exactly what medical ethics is. Um, he, um, he's in D.C. He was, he was advisor to President Obama. And he, he's, he's an MD, PhD. 
right? And he's a chairman of some kind of... And once he made a comment about when Obamacare came about, and his name is uh, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. He's the brother of uh, Ram Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago. And Ezekiel made a statement. He said, it's time that physicians ethically should start caring more... I don't exact wording, but... In essence, that physicians should start be more concerned about the well-being of the whole society rather than the individual they face in the exam room. To me, that was, wow. I thought we were taught in medical school and medical ethics that when you sit in the exam room, the whole world revolves around one human being, and that is the patient. And yet... Yet, Dr. Emmanuel is saying, no, 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 no. When you see a patient, just think about how much money you spent on that patient and how much of that money you can have saved and maybe shifted and sent it to Uganda to help to prevent malaria. To me, that's a whole new paradigm shift in the morals and ethics of patients. And to be honest with you, I totally resent it. When I, when I looked him up and, he, and found that he had an MD behind his name, I immediately inquired, where did he get that MD from? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were going to say something. But, you know, you, we were talking about the whole treating the patient, not just the patient in the, in the exam room, but treating everyone around that patient, right? Well, I mentioned before in one of our other episodes about the oncology care model, which is a, a Centers for Medicare uh, right. model, right? That's what they're forcing us to do as an OCM practice. They're making us make sure that um, the patient and the caregivers are part of the care plan, that they are part of the decision-making, that we um, have demonstrated to give them access or suggestions for outside um Charlie, although this is outside the topic, could you explain to the listeners what the OCM model is, what is the intention? My understanding is the intention is Medicare is saying, if I understand right, that we are spending a lot of money on unnecessary things, like too many patients are hospitalized unnecessarily. Too many patients go to emergency rooms unnecessarily. And they're saying, if you can bring a model and do things that minimize those costs or expenses, that the system will work better. Am I right? Right. Basically, in essence, the OCM, the oncology care model, is to have real-time access for patients who are on active cancer treatments to the facility that's treating them, meaning if they get sick uh, in the morning, during the day, they call in and the front desk receptionist, our lovely Jasmine, says, come right in. If it's after hours, they have your cell phone. Uh, remember the episode we, we talked about uh, last week, week before, personalized medicine? They want that if patients feel that there is a personalized medicine for them, personalized meaning they are individual human beings known by name and face and family and connections and all that, that those patients will do better. Yeah. So if they get my cell phone, which they do, if they know my email, which they do, and if they can call 24 hours and they can reach me, which they do, then those patients will do better. Is that is that the philosophy? Yes, it keeps them out of the ER, which automatically is an admission with unnecessary testing. In a nutshell, that's what OCM is trying to to do. The OCM, the oncology care yep. model. 
Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a good program. Um, I think ultimately it does help patients because it doesn't uh, negatively influence patient care, right? Uh, they do want to make sure that if they're, they, mean, they meaning Medicare, CMS, that if there is an, equ- an equal or equivalent alternative that is at lower cost, they encourage us to use that. Right. And you are in the business of buying and selling drugs, right? Well, not those drugs. <laughs> you you buy chemo drugs and you know um, the differential between similar drugs. It can be really huge, especially if there is a generic available. That comes into play, but the biggest thing is is the cost of hospital admissions hospital admissions home health care they and the 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 model actually takes into consideration every single pay, a penny that's spent on that patient during their time that they're on the model so even if the patient was in a car accident that goes towards their funding the the expenditure for that patient during their episode. I know we both we discussed is this. that ethical uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's I think we, we we are part I mean Gabriel Cancer Center is part of the OCM model we're proud of it I think there is uh, how many practices 190 yeah. and there is about 10,000 oncologists in the US but we were selected because we know we we kind of have the 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 metrics they are looking for we already have achieved them we just we are, we've doctor. been doing them for 22 years because it's a good medicine. Yeah. Because, but back to the back to the subject of of medical ethics. Um, let me. There is some another area. We do know that there is a law called Stark II law that's named after Congressman Stark. Stark law was passed back in the 70s, I believe. In fact, I was even in the U.S. then. I, probably I wasn't even the doctor then. Stark law demands that uh, physicians cannot refer to themselves, meaning um, a group of doctors cannot together, a group of independent doctors cannot together put chip in money and buy or build a, let's say, uh, a radiology center, CAT scan, MRI, whatever, and they cannot refer patients to that center. Now, individually they can. So, like GCC, I own it, right? We have a CAT scan. I own it. There's no other corner. That I can refer patients to my center. But I cannot go to other three, four docs, right, and build a unit. And we all share in the cost and at the same time uh, cash profit and, and refer patients to it. It's kind of mischievous law. I think, I think the American Hospital Association was masterful in creating Star Tulo. Regardless, um, we are a country of law in America. In fact, we are a country of law more than a country of morals. We have morality, but ultimately our guide is the law. That's the Constitution. And everything we do, it seems, in medicine, as long as it's legal, it is considered as moral. Right? Right. So, it is legal for me that I refer my patients to my buddy golfer, who I know he's probably not the best neurologist in the world, but, you know, he's my buddy golfer, and so on. I, legally, I can do that. 
That was just a minor example, by the way. What I think what medical schools and, and, and training programs are failing at is not mention this at all, that referrals are biased individually. It's legal, but morally, if you go by the medical ethics, that should be the essence of medical ethics. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be a patient that you referred to a friend who you just had around a golf with just because you play golf with you play golf. You know, I want you to send me to the 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 physician who you would send your wife or your sister or your daughter to. The question is is the medical establishment compliant with those moral rules? So I'll give you an example. If there is, let's say, a multi-specialty group, meaning 50, 60 doctors, 20 of them family docs, 15 of them internists, there is oncologist, there is radiologist, there is whatever, and you are a patient for one of the family docs, and you have eye problems, and they have ophthalmologists in the group, what are the odds that you'll be referred to an ophthalmologist outside the group? Zero. Zero. Why? You have to play the game. I mean, it's. I, I think that... What game? So patient care is becoming a game. And you're right. I so think so. Because the ophthalmologist is part of the group, they share the same purse. Right? So that family doctor, he knows, and believe me, I have some good examples about this. When that family doctor referred to ophthalmologist, he very much or she very much knows that the revenues generated from caring for you will go back to the main pot that everybody shares with. Isn't that moral? Is that ethical? Definitely not ethical. Now, the family doctor might say, hey, listen, I know this ophthalmologist. I've dealt with her for five, ten years. I think she's the best, which is great. It's ironic. If she quit and they bring a new one, the same statement will be made. Very true. So, I don't know if the public knows that these are fundamentally deep, important moral and ethical issues with medicine that are not being taught at all. All we talk about medical ethics, euthanasia, euthanasia, come on. We are against euthanasia, get over it. But there are, I think there is uh, some left-wing group of the AMA who want gradually to legalize euthanasia. And that's why they keep talking about the subject as part of medical ethics. To me, the oath is clear. You don't administer something that will hurt patients. You just don't end lives. Right? Right. End of story. The Vatican made a clear statement about 15 years ago. The Vatican said, listen... And you, you have to respect the Vatican's opinion, right? They said, listen, if a physician provides or gives a medication that can shorten the patient's life, if the intent was to relieve the suffering, shortening that life is an okay. Why do we keep talking about this every single day while the example of I told you about, the multi-specialty group, is hush-hush. You know why? Because it deals with our pockets. 
In fact, if you think about it, you look at the Stark Law, I know it doesn't apply to multi-specialty group because they have the same, what do you call it, PIN number? Tax ID. PIN. Yeah, the same tax ID number, right? So they get away with it. Um, tell me, Shalia, your experience, have you seen similar scenarios like hospitals, um, I don't, I don't think golfing with somebody will make me really break my rules and my ethics, right? Well, we have talked earlier about, uh, in another episode, about referral patterns in hospitals. And, and I, I think it's, you know, bringing the ethical part of it, the ethical aspect into that, our prior conversation, it is definitely unethical the way that um, the hospitals work in the referral patterns and, and how they deal with not just the referrals, it's it's actually even the the testing and the procedures that are done and how they're worked. Now it was Anthem who finally is putting a stop to this. In mid November they came out with that new policy that um that they will not allow imaging in the hospital if it can be done outside in an outside um Isn't it amazing that actually an insurance company is teaching us medical ethics. Yes. So when we talk about referrals in the previous episodes, um, we were talking more about the kind of um, fairness or unfairness in the system um, and how patients are kind of short-changed with, with, with the hospitals owning physicians and kind of uh, not forcing them, but luring them, or in a, in a very s- a cryptic way telling Enticing. them what to do. Entice them. Right. Today, I'm talking about the physicians. I mean, we all know hospital administrators went to school to do what? To run a business that makes money. Everything else to them is secondary. Of course, it becomes a challenge. When a physician becomes part of a hospital administration, that becomes a challenge. Because when those physicians make those, become administrators. And they, when they make those decisions that restrict access to patients and even violate some moral codes, like the Hippocratic Oath, that becomes a problem. In fact, I suggested to the board of, the Ohio Board of Medicine a few years ago that any physician who quits seeing patients and becomes administrator, license should be suspended until he goes or she goes back to practice medicine. There's no listening here, of course, because we, you know how we are, we're like, like, like a country club. That is one of the biggest challenges that I see in, 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 in medicine these days is the, the poor physicians. Of course, when the, when the physician is employed by hospitals, yeah, we can demand them and require them to be moral and ethical. Problem is, they uh, when you're employed by a hospital, you are under the microscope. You are expected to generate X, Y, Z revenues. Those are the obvious. There are the less obvious things that only administrators calculate, but everybody knows what they calculate. Um, Remember once there was one VP from one of the hospitals and she said, Gary, you are not our most favorite physician. I said, why? 
because she said uh, your numbers, you don't order as many tests and you don't hospitalize as many patients. And she said, I back off, you know, you're a good doctor, blah, 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 all that. But when it comes to economics, you don't rank among the top for our physicians. That was an eye-opener. She's a great lady, of course. I loved her dearly, and I respect her a lot. But it was a truthful statement that, of course, I'm not employed by the hospital. God help those who are employed by the hospital. And what are they demanded to do? This is my major concern, is the moral campus for those people, those physicians. I'm sure most of them are have more sound moral values. I th- I'm sure that most of them are people who adore the, the, the oath and do best for patients. But when you put them under that stress test, I think some of them crack, or most. Which brings me to um, the thought of the, 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 the notices that go out, go out on an annual basis of the numbers generated by physicians in the hospitals. Is that ethical? It is, I think. It's not, it's not, again, Charlie, we, we are a country of laws, not of morals, right? Although we want to be moral, right? But we are a country of law. So they have all the right to release that information. And they have all the right to use that information for their business purposes. My problem is with the physicians not resisting those maneuvers. My problem is the physicians not saying, you know what, you're crossing a line I can't, I, that you're trying to make me cross a line that I cannot cross. That's the problem we have. I think that's the end of our program today. Charlie, I think the, the, I think the, the listeners, they really need to understand that we at Gabriel Cancer Center watch very carefully our moral compass and especially in referring patients in fact we do the same to our primary care clinics at the factories that regardless of personal feelings of our physician or not I only care about two things number one do they actually care about the human beings I send them to and number two are they cost conscious cost conscious in a way to me because uh, somebody might say that cost conscious could mean oh you're cutting corners no it is not cutting corners, it is avoiding overutilization that can be to the detriment of patients. I'm sure our staff at, GC, at Gabriel Cancer Center have a lot of the pride in how we do things. I think the reception is one of them that she knows when I say, refer this to Mr. X or y, Dr. X or Y and Z, and when she says, oh, they can't see them until after two months from now, she knows what my responses usually are. I, I constantly, constantly watch myself that in every single scenario, Make sure that patient is number one and their well-being is number one. And from your end and the rest of, the, of, of your billing staff, you have some patients advocates that actually do, I don't think anybody else in the world, put all the effort and bending backwards to make life easy for patients, to assure them that they will get their treatments regarding, you know, regardless or, or in spite of the financial challenges. And insurance challenges. And insurance challenges. They're a team that all come together to make it happen. That, to me, that is a moral compass that that should be taught in medical school and residence programs. 